One of the defining aspects of myths, fables and fairy tales is how often and how easily they are passed down from one age to the next. The handover marked by subtle adjustments so the changes can meet the cultural shifts of the following generation. But it is not just generations that fables transcend. It is cultures. The celebrated anthropologist Joseph Campbell analysed the world's ancient civilizations, and his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces showed the remarkable similarities between the stories they told. One of Campbell's most committed devotees took the Norse legend of the Nibelungen lead and threaded it into this franchise. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Star Wars is not the only one. The Wizard of Oz, The Searchers, Falling Down, O Brother Where Art Thou, and Finding Nemo all reshape Homer's Odyssey. Ovid's Pygmalion has been reconfigured into Born Yesterday, My Fair Lady, Weird Science, Pretty Woman, and Ex Machina. As for the Asphalt Jungle, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, A Fish Called Wanda, Dead Presidents, and Baby Driver, they are all modern-day versions of Prometheus. And last, but more pertinent to this podcast, King Kong, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, On the Waterfront, An American Werewolf in London, Edward Scissorhands, and the Twilight series, each contain uncanny resemblances to Beauty and the Beast. Finished already? Oh, I couldn't put it down. Have you got anything new? <laughs> Not since yesterday. That's all right. I'll borrow this one. That one? But you've read it twice. Well, it's my favorite. Borrow places, daring sword fights, magic spells, a prince in disguise. If you like it all that much, it's yours. But, sir... I insist. Well, thank you. Now a multi-billion dollar Disney franchise, Beauty and the Beast was animated in 1991, choreographed on ice the next year, produced on Broadway two years after, a TV series spin-off just before the end of the last century, and then, last year, mounted as a lavish live-action musical. In fact, so enormous is that franchise, and so all-encompassing is the studio's branding, that you'd be forgiven for thinking that Disney actually created the story. Much as they have done with J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, and Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. I need your help, I don't know what to do. I can't help you if you don't even know who you are, stupid girl. I'm not stupid. My name is Alice, I live in London. I have a mother named Helen and a sister named Margaret. My father was Charles Kingsley. He had a vision that stretched halfway around the world and nothing ever stopped him. I'm his daughter. I'm Alice Kingsley. Alice, at last. Long before Tinkerbell sprinkled fairy dust across the Enchanted Kingdom, Beauty and the Beast was La Belle et la Bête. It first turned up in print in 1740, when Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve included it in a collection she titled The Young American and Marine Tales. Then in 1756, it was not so much rewritten as heavily edited by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. De Beaumont began by excising several backstories, including one about the prince's mother, another about her brother, and a third about the king who married a shepherdess. Du Beaumont then included it in her own anthology of fairy tales, 
children's collection. That version was translated into English the very next year. But it didn't get a firm foothold in English literature until 1889, when Scottish poet and literary critic Andrew Lang included it in yet another anthology, Blue Fairy Book. As pronounced as translating any story into another language is, transferring it from page to celluloid demands many more adjustments. None of which excuses the first time Beauty and the Beast appeared on screen. That occurred in 1932, when Warner Brothers made a short cartoon of it as part of their Merry Melody series. Despite using the same title and including a half-human beast, it bears little to no resemblance to either de Villeneuve's original or de Beaumont's edited version. Which means it wasn't until 1946 that the very first feature-length adaptation was brought to the screen. But at least it was made in France. It is important to note that almost every single filmed adaptation of La Belle et la Bête has favoured de Beaumont's version as the source material. And when Jean Cocteau wrote and directed his version, it was from de Beaumont that he drew inspiration. But Cocteau, who had already found fame as a poet and novelist, changed the story in truly profound ways. In fact, if you're only familiar with the Disney musical, you will likely be very surprised as to how many cues they took from Cocteau's film. To begin, try to imagine the story without the candlestick Lumiere, the clock Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts the teapot, and Chip the teacup. None of them are in any of de Villeneuve's or de Beaumont's versions, or even Lang's translation. So where did Disney get the inspiration? Although Cocteau didn't include talking porcelain, he did transform the castle into a magical and mysterious place, filled with candles that burst into flame, statues that move, and shadows that take on a life of their own. In addition, it was Cocteau who created a suitor for Belle, whom he named as Avenant, but which Disney then reformed as Gaston. Hello, Belle. Bonjour, Gaston. Gaston, may I have my book, please? How can you read this? There's no pictures. Well, some people use their imagination. Belle, it's about time you got your head out of those books and paid attention to more important things, like me. Cocteau also changed the story's tone and meaning. It was originally intended as a fable for young girls to learn that marriage should be for love and not money. However, Cocteau's theme is the transcendental, transformative, redemptive and restorative power of love. Which may explain why Cocteau's beast is half man, half lion. Before Cocteau's film, the story's only visual references were the illustrations that accompanied many of the anthologies. There the beast was depicted as a forest creature, such as a bear or a boar, sometimes a pig or a non-specific reptile, even a snake. But why did Cocteau settle on a half-man, half-lion? Because it suggests a noble virtue resides in the beast's heart. And because the lion is referred to as the king of the jungle, it is to the noble virtue that he is restored. To reinforce that idea, Cocteau cast the same actor, Jean Marais, to play the beast, Avenant, and the prince.
But bold as Cocteau's version still is, and old as the fairy tale is assumed to be, in actual fact it is a lot older. According to Jamie Turani, anthropologist at Durham University, and Sarah Gratha da Silva, folklorist at the University of Lisbon, La Belle et la Bête could date back as far as 4,000 years. In other words, the tale existed in some form long before the formation of European languages. Which immediately prompts the question, how could a story survive not just that long, but so many iterations? Tirani and De Silva are able to trace fables and legends that far back, because they have found that stories behave a lot like living organisms, building up mutations in the genes that then pass to successive generations. Using the same tools that evolutionary biologists use to study species, Tirani and De Silva can reconstruct the relationships between various versions of the story, comparing them to a family tree. Or to use the proper word, phylogenies. Modern proof of this can be found in the Russian fairy tale The Little Scarlet Flower, written in 1858 by Sergei Aksakov. Aksakov admitted that he wrote the story not from his imagination, but rather the memory of having been told the story as a child. And it is his version, and not Disney's, that Russians would be most familiar with. Accordingly, in 1952, Armenian director Lev Atamanian bought The Little Scarlet Flower to the screen as an animated feature thus beating Disney by almost four decades. Further proof of the story's versatility was presented in 1978, when Czech director Jerez Hertz reconfigured the fairy tale as a horror. Another very dark aspect of the story is admitted to in Cocteau's version, when Belle has her very first conversation with the Beast. Belle has already collapsed in terror in the castle, and Beast has carried her into her bedroom. There she wakens to see him, and is terrorised all over again. Then they have a third encounter, this time in the dining hall, and finally they talk. The Beast acknowledges that Belle is terrified by his monstrous appearance. Je vous to which Belle observes, many men are monstrous, they just disguise it. Which is a succinct comment on how easily the story can be inverted to where a woman falls in love only to find herself in an abusive relationship. This we have seen in numerous guises from as long ago as The Public Enemy when James Cagney attacked May Clark when Rita Hayworth suffered at the hands of Glenn Ford in Gilda, Marlon Brando lashed out at Kim Hunter in A Streetcar Named Desire, Shelley Winters was murdered by Robert Mitchum in The Night of the Hunter, Rod Steiger assaulted Julie Christie in Dr. Zhivago, Harvey Keitel threatened Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Whoopi Goldberg endured under several men in The Colour Purple, Julia Roberts fled her controlling husband in Sleeping with the Enemy, and more recently, Kerry Mulligan in The Great Gatsby, Patricia Arquette in Boyhood, and Emily Blunt in The Girl on the Train. Sorry, Tom. Stop fucking saying that. I know you're sorry. 
Sorry. It's a fucking problem. You can't even focus on me. You can't even fucking stand up. What is wrong with you? Can you stand? Fucking <sighs> disgusting. Another aspect of the story that has come to the fore, but undoubtedly has always been present, is the theme of a girl becoming a woman and asserting her independence while combating an arranged marriage. By entering into that, the woman has to separate herself from her family, and as a byproduct of that separation, is the woman encountering her sexuality. Of course, the tension for Belle is that her love for her father is working against her curiosity for, growing fascination with, and the physical embrace of adult love all of which are stages of self-realisation. Another key step on that road is what psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan titled the mirror phase, a developmental step where an infant recognises her or his self in the mirror. And let's face it, mirrors play a great role in the story. In fact, the first time Cocteau shows us Belle, the first view we get of her is in a reflection. Cocteau loved mirrors, not because he was a narcissist in love with his own image, but because of what they offered cinema. He once famously said of them, mirrors would do well to reflect a little more before sending back images. And it was that sensibility that allowed Cocteau to play with them. In his first film, Blood of a Poet, made in 1930, he had his lead character Orpheus literally and figuratively fall into a mirror. Blood of a Poet turned out to be the first in a trilogy exploring the Greek myth, and 20 years later, Cocteau used the mirror again, where Orpheus is able to travel into the underworld by way of a looking glass, which, when he touches it, ripples like water. That motif found a visual echo in the Matrix when Neo touched the mirror and the reflection morphed around his finger like honey. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can't be. Be what? Be real? But besides being a portal to another dimension, cinema presents looking in a mirror as a moment of self-reflection, or a moment to reflect on events, or a moment to write a message on the surface, or a shock when the character does not see themselves. A mirror can reflect different realities, offer up multiple images of one person, or the mirror can be cracked. Now consider the various ways films such as Duck Soup, Citizen Kane, Dark Passage, The Lady from Shanghai, All About Eve, Abu the Souffle, Peeping Tom, Butterfield 8, La Notte, Persona, Taxi Driver, Apocalypse Now, Dangerous Liaisons, Candyman, Boogie Nights, American Psycho, The Ring, and the entire Harry Potter series have all used mirrors. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Now consider this. The way cinema has male characters look at themselves in mirrors is, for the most part, quite different from the way female characters do. Overall, it seems that when a male character looks at himself, it is for his own satisfaction and affirmation, while when a female character does so, it is for critical judgment. When confronted by her own criticism, the female character expresses conflict by crying and looking away, while if a man is conflicted by what he sees, he lashes out and destroys the mirror. 
With all that confusion, it makes you wonder why you'd ever want to look in one. 